Well, getting a bit of a complex. Um, I think I've uh, preached, man, I don't know how many times, but I think this is the fourth, fifth time that there's been a technological issue. And so um, we're going to keep going. If the power goes out, I'm going to keep preaching. I'm just so thankful that you're here. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to open up the precious Word of God. So let's bow together. Heavenly Father, you are good, and all your promises, they come true. We can count on them. God, you deliver us. You have offered us salvation in your son, Jesus. We rest in him today. We ask, God, that um, you would open our eyes, that you would enlighten our hearts, Lord. Bring about um, your spirit in this place. Spirit of God, move and work. I pray, Lord, that you would just speak into our lives, that we wouldn't just realize, recognize, understand things, God, but that we would be mobilized as your body to make change and to see change happen in our midst because we know, God, that you want to draw us close to you. And so we pray that you would do that in these moments and that you would do that as you send us from this place today. Now, as we open your word, God, you have full reign to draw us closer to your son, Jesus. Draw our affections toward Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. So lightning flashed through the darkness over Donald Lubeck's bedroom skylight. Um, before the 80-year-old could count to 1-1,000, 1, he was shaken by a blast of thunder. It was 11 p.m. and the storm had settled just over his two-story wood home in a rural city in Massachusetts. He woke up and he heard the smoke alarm beeping. And so he padded downstairs, barefoot, went to the basement door and opened up that door and flames just exploded through the door. And this sudden gust from the doorway instantaneously created this inferno of smoldering fire, most likely caused by the lightning hitting the fuse box in the basement. His hair and his face are singed and he fled back upstairs to call 911 from his bedroom. He would later say, I felt safe because the room that I was going to had an exterior doorway that would go downstairs, and so he was counting on that. But as he got back upstairs, he realized that the phone didn't work. He realized, too, that the exterior hallway was blocked off because there was now already a wall of flames. And so Donald Lubick started panicking. He realized he was trapped. You see, Donald, he lived with his daughter and his two granddaughters, but they happened to be away for the night. He uh, knew that he was all alone. He thought, no one is going to come and help me. No one really knows I'm here. His house was three miles off the main road, and it was hidden by a bunch of trees, pine trees. And he knew that calling out would be fruitless. No one would be there to help him. So he's sitting there upstairs and he could hear the fire growing and roaring, cracks, booms, bangs all over the place. And the only thing he could think was, is I'm going to die alone and I have no one to say goodbye to. However, up the hill, about a third of a mile away, was Donald Lubeck's closest neighbors, Jeremy Wentworth and his wife. And because of the storm, Jeremy had also woken up and he, he heard what he thought were crickets going on outside. But finally, it occurred to him, the sound was more like a smoke detector. 
Now, I want you to imagine yourself in one of two places in this scenario, in this story. I want you to think that, what would you do if you're Donald Lubeck? Okay, you're alone, you're all alone upstairs, there's fire going everywhere, you think that no one's coming to get you. Or, you're Jeremy Wentworth, there's a storm going on and you hear a fire detector. What would your neighbors do? If you're Donald Lubeck, how do you think your neighbors would respond? If you're Jeremy Wentworth, as a neighbor, how would you respond? What would you do? Now maybe for you, um, you've got some stereotypical neighbors in your life. I know that I do. In fact, one of my neighbors lives right across the street. It's one of our pastors, John Pierce. Fantastic neighbor. So I'm not talking about John when I mention any of these following people, okay? Just keep that in mind. But maybe you have a nosy neighbor. Anybody got a nosy neighbor? You know, the type that knows all the gossip in your neighborhood. They're, they're always asking questions, and anytime you see them, they just have something to say about somebody else. Or maybe they have a question to ask, like, Ryan, did you see so-and-so's house? They still have leaves in their front yard. It's January. Do they not own a rake? And you know that passive-aggressively they're talking about you because you still have leaves in your front yard. You know what I mean? Maybe you have a nosy neighbor. How do you think that your nosy neighbor would respond if there was a fire going on in your house? Maybe you have a recluse neighbor. Anybody got a recluse neighbor? Just that neighbor that uh, you've never really seen their face before. You know they exist because the garage goes up, they go in and they shut the garage immediately, but you've never seen them. If you saw them out at the grocery, you would have no way to recognize them, but they live right next door. They're the type of neighbor that will not hand out candy at Halloween, right? Lights always off. How would they respond if they knew that your fire alarm smoke detector was going off. Maybe you have an obnoxious neighbor. We all have those, right? The obnoxious neighbor that likes to play loud music in the middle of the night. It seems like they have a party going all, all the time. They like to work on their car outside and rev up the engine every time. Or maybe the worst thing yet, you have an infant, you just got them back to sleep in the middle of the night and they decide to put the dog outside, right? so the dog can bark all night and wake up your infant. Maybe you've had a run-in time or two with this obnoxious neighbor. How do you think that they would respond if the smoke detector was going off in your home? Maybe for you, you've had one too many neighbors like this. And because of that, you've moved out somewhere where you're like, man, I am not gonna have any neighbors anymore. You've tried really hard not to know anybody in your neighborhood. This morning, as we navigate relationships that we have, or maybe for you that you don't have with your neighbors, I want to ask you a few questions. And I think that these questions can help really um, orient us all and give us a framework with which to think about our neighbors. What if I told you that God has a plan for you when it comes to your neighbors? What if I told you that God has providentially placed you where you are right now to have an internal impact on your neighbors? What if I told you that God wants you to build real relationships with your neighbors, with the people that you live by, the people that you work with, the people in your sphere of influence? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. Now, this is not a typical passage that we would look to when discussing the topic of neighbors. In fact, 
most of us would probably turn over to Luke chapter 10. It's there we find the parable of the good Samaritan. You're probably familiar with that. But having just covered that parable and just unpacked that passage last semester in our Share Hope series, it was an evangelism series we had about taking Jesus, taking hope to people. If you haven't checked that out, it's available online or on our app. I think you should go watch that. But having checked that out just recently and unpacked that, I thought we would look at a different passage this morning. And so we're looking at 1 Corinthians 10. Now before I read this, before we jump into this text, I I don't believe that the main thrust of this verse, these verses, is to answer this question, who is my neighbor? How are we to treat our neighbors? In fact, I think that it's better found there in Luke chapter 10. But as you'll see as we dive in and really unpack this passage, um, we have some great implications that we can find from this passage in regard to how we should treat our neighbors, what our relationships should look like with our neighbors. I believe that the main thrust of this passage, as I will unpack as we move along, is really to address some issues that the Corinthian church had. You see, the Apostle Paul, he writes these verses to combat combat some inaccuracies that they had in their thinking. Got some new believers, and these new believers now have this liberty. They have this freedom, this Christian freedom. And because they're saved by Jesus and they have this freedom, they think that, man, I can do whatever I want to. And so Paul's addressing this. He's telling them, hey, that's not how you're supposed to live. You have not been set free to appease your own desires, but rather, and this is important, to bring glory to God. That's why you've been set free. That's the main thrust of the passage we're about ready to unpack. And we'll see that more as we get to verse 31. But with that said, I do think we have some great implications for us this morning. How can we treat our neighbors? Why should we engage our neighbors? And how can our relationships have an eternal impact on our neighbors? So with the time we have left, I want to give you three principles in order for you to think through when it comes to interacting with your neighbors. If you have the app, go ahead and pull that up. Uh, You can write down and take notes in there. If you grabbed one of the sheets of paper, love for you to write through part of your listening guide and write these principles down. The first one's this. First principle is to be selfless over selfish. To be selfless, selfish. Wait a second. Selfless over selfish. I think that's written wrong up there. Is that wrong? Should be selfless over selfish. All right? Selfless over selfish. All right, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. It says this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but rather the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let me give you some context here. The people at Corinth were saying all things are lawful. So hopefully in your text, in your version, it has some uh, quotations around this, all things are lawful. This was most likely a slogan um, that the Corinthians were using in order to defend their sinful behavior. In fact, Paul had already mentioned, if you look back in chapter 6 and verse 12, that, that he um, encourages them to flee sexual immorality because they were using this slogan, all things are lawful, so we're going to do whatever we want. But here, he's returning to this idea of right, the right they have specifically to eat. That was addressed earlier again in chapter 8 and verse 9. There, Paul says, 
take care that this right, again, the right to eat, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Let me unpack this for us, all right? So the Corinthians, these new believers, had these newfound freedoms in Christ. They had given their lives to Christ. They had recognized that they needed salvation in Christ. And now they're walking in Christ, and they've got this liberty, this freedom from what they had experienced their whole lives. And because of that, their response was just to do whatever they wanted to. But Paul says, okay, you may say it's lawful, but is it helpful? That's the important question. You may say it's lawful, but does it build up? That's the important question. In the original text, um, I, I think a good word here for build up would be edify. Um, the word edify, it gives us this picture of to build a house. I absolutely love that. To edify means to, to build up, to, to join together, to build something up that you couldn't do alone. If you were with us just this past fall in a series we did called Greater Than, we walked through 1 Corinthians 12, and it's there we unpacked how everyone who comes to faith in Jesus um, is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And when you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then you have been given a spiritual gift, and you're to use that gift along with other believers to contribute, to edify to build up the body. If you've been through growth track, you've heard me talk about this a lot. I'm passionate about how the Holy Spirit gifts us and how we're to contribute together to build up the body. And that's what Paul is getting at here when he says it may be lawful, it may be within the rules, but it really doesn't build up. It may be lawful, maybe within the rules, but it really doesn't edify. It's really not helpful. Let me give you some lighthearted examples to help you understand this. I have been married almost 16 years now. It's hard to believe, almost 16 years. And I've paid a lot of dumb tax when it comes to being a husband. Any husband in here paid a lot of dumb tax? You've learned a lot of things. Yeah, that is certainly me. So I'm gonna give you some things, husbands, that may be lawful within the context of marriage, but probably are not helpful, nor will they build up your marriage, okay? So if you're a, a new husband, listen and really lean in to some of these things. It may be lawful and it may be within your right to actually use or lay your head on a decorative pillow. Okay, that may be okay. But let me tell you, the 15 decorative pillows you have on your bed or on your couch, don't touch them. They're not there for you, okay? Maybe lawful, but it's not gonna build up your marriage. Okay, just a, it's just a truth. Lean into that one, okay? It, it may be lawful for you while you're in the car with your wife if you ever ride in the passenger seat. Maybe lawful for you to say something like, hey, sweetie, slow down. Or, hey, sweetie, watch out here. Give directions on where you go. But that's not, that's not helpful in your marriage, okay? Don't tell your wife how to drive. It's not good. Done it. I've paid the dumb tax, okay? Maybe lawful, and you may think that you have a right to ask this question to your wife. I've done this before as well, shamefully. Hey, sweetie, did you enjoy that entire carton of ice cream? Yeah. That may be within the right for you to say something like that. But that's not, it's not going to build up your marriage. It's not helpful in your marriage at all. Now, I realize these are some silly examples, but really what I'm trying to get at here is you need to deny yourself and think about someone else. You need to be selfless rather than selfish. And when you do that, you build up others and you build up your marriage. Paul, in these two verses, he's telling us choose edification over gratification. He's telling us choose to invest in others rather than to indulge in yourself. He's telling you to be selfless rather than to be selfish. 
And as believers, we must have an others-oriented posture when making a decision that might have an effect on our neighbors. Let me say that again. As believers, we must have an others-oriented posture when making a decision that might have an effect on our neighbors, whether believers or unbelievers that we're affecting. Why? Because it brings glory to God and it points people to Jesus. And I'm gonna say that at least three times, so I want you to write it down now. So when I say it later, you can be like, yeah, that's what he said earlier, okay? But what does this look like practically? What does this look like practically? Okay, first, ask yourself this question. Do I have the right to do that? Do I have the right to do that? If the answer is yes, then you move on to the next question. Will it build me up and it w- will it build up the people around me? If the answer is yes, guess what you do? You do it. All right, now, let's go back. Do I have the right to do that? Yes. Will it build me up and the others around me? If the answer is no, then you don't do it. You sacrifice what you want for others. You're selfless, selfless rather than being selfish. That's the first principle. That's the first guardrail we have in interacting with neighbors. The second one's this, to immerse over interrogate. To immerse over interrogate. Let's pick up reading in verse 25. Paul continues when he says this, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the believers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So you notice here that Paul kind of turns the page in regard to Christian liberty. So he has said, deny yourself. Now he is saying, use your Christian liberty. Now, if you're like me, you sometimes read this and you may think, man, there, this is like a contradiction to what he's telling us to do. But what I believe is that this is actually a balance or a healthy tension. And we see these balances, we see these tensions all throughout Scripture. And so in verse 25, I think what he's saying is it's good rather to immerse yourself in the life of your neighbor. It's good to immerse yourself um, in the life of your neighbor, not to really interrogate and to ask a lot of questions. And this declaration in verse 25 is grounded in verse 26, where he says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he's saying, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Don't ask if what is sold, if what you're eating has actually been sacrificed to idols, but eat it, okay? Eat it, use that Christian liberty. I think Paul's saying, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Rather, go down to the level of a brother or sister in Christ. Sacrifice what you're doing, but show some Christian liberty. Be there for them. Don't stand up on that mountaintop and look down at them like the Pharisees were doing. So often, if you're a believer in Jesus, it's so easy to do this, to stand up on that mountaintop and look at other people and to dig and to dig and to dig and to find anything that you can wrong with them so that you can do one of two things. You can distance yourself from that person or you can judge that person. It's a lot of times what we do. We try to dig and dig, we interrogate, we ask questions so we don't have to really get to know our neighbors. As a parent, I know that I struggle with this idea of immersing myself in my kid's life versus interrogating them. Dad, big dad fail right here. So I'm preparing this sermon. I know I'm talking about this. And on Friday night, I hear my kids bickering in the other room. 
Now, rather than going in there and immersing myself in them and loving on them and showing grace to them, here's what I do as a parent. And I'm sure none of you have ever done this before, but this is what I did. I separated the two of them so I could question them separately. You know what I mean? I'm like, all right, Evie, you go in that room, Roman. You go in this room. And I go and I question them to try to catch what's happening, making sure that their stories align. And then I end up sending them to their room saying, hey, go think about what you've done, right? But what I need to do is just go in there and love on them. You know, when you walk into a dirty playroom, anybody have a playroom in their house with their kids? Okay, we have a, a playroom, it's always dirty. And whenever I go in there, my first response typically is to interrogate them and be like, hey, what happened here? You know, where's the tornado? What, why does this room look like it does? And rather than doing that, what I need to go in there is just make a mess with them. Love on them. It's so often, this is how we treat our neighbors. This is how we treat our neighbors, especially if they don't know Jesus. Now, we may not interrogate them face-to-face -face because you might get arrested for that. They might call 911. But we do get on Facebook, and we Facebook stalk them, and we look and we see what they're doing. We're like, oh, did you say they went to this place? Oh, did you say they, they did this? Did you see they're hanging out with this person? Again, so we can distance ourselves from them. Again, so we can really judge them. But I think that this is what Paul is especially going against here. Look with me at verse 27. He's telling them to immerse yourself in the lives of unbelievers. Don't try to find a reason to offend them. Don't try to find a reason not to have dinner with them. It's the second time I'm going to say this, but as believers, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as a believer, you must have an others-oriented posture when making a decision that might have an effect on your neighbors. Why? Because it glorifies God and it points people to, it glorifies God and it points people to Jesus. In these three verses, I think Paul is saying, choose liberty over legalism. Choose to immerse yourself in the lives of others versus interrogate them. So I think we've put up now these two guardrails that hold a healthy tension, okay? Be selfless over being selfish and choose liberty over legalism, all right? And this third principle, I think, is gonna kind of ground the whole thing together. The third one's this. It's to refrain over restrain. Refrain over restrain. Let's pick up, let's jump back in to verse 28. It says this. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why would my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So in these three verses, I believe that Paul returns his attention back to that of a believer in Jesus Christ. You as a mature believer, how do you interact with a less mature believer? And again here, he reiterates his point from chapter 8, that a mature believer should not cause an immature believer to stumble by what they do. Don't use your Christian liberty to cause someone else to sin. So in this case, refrain from doing whatever you're going to do if it's in your power, if it's going to cause someone else to sin. Refrain, and it's much better than restraining or hindering another believer in their walk with Christ. Now, here's where this passage gets a bit tricky. Maybe in your mind you're thinking, I don't really get how these two, hold to these, how these two things hold in tension. 
But if you've followed along with me, you've heard Paul say, don't offend an unbeliever by not eating what he's brought to the table. So go ahead and eat is what he's saying. But now he says, don't offend a young believer, maybe an immature believer by eating something that has been sacrificed to an idol. So if you find out it's been sacrificed, don't eat it. If you don't know, you can eat it. You see the, see the tension there? What do you do? How do you live in this? And I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to give you some advice, what I believe that Scripture teaches. And I think that this is mis, uh, it's often misunderstood. So I want to unpack this slowly for us. If you have to choose between a Christian and a non-Christian, which one to offend, offend a, a non-Christian. I'm going to say that again. Offend a non-Christian before you would offend a Christian. Now here's why, and this is the important part. In order that your love might be made manifest to the world for your brother in Christ, in order that your love for your brother in Christ might be made known to that unbeliever. Does that make sense? It's a hard one to understand, but rather than offend your Christian brother or sister, offend a non-Christian so that your non-Christian friend, unbelieving friend might ask, why are they doing that? Why are they sacrificing their liberties for their brother in Christ? That's what Paul is teaching. Now, I don't mean that you should go out and offend anyone and everyone. Don't go offend people. If you look forward just a little bit in verse 32, it says, Give no offense neither to Jews nor to the Greeks nor to the church of God. But if an unbeliever asks you and a young Christian to go watch a movie, and you think by watching that movie it would cause your new believer friend to stumble, here's what you do. You don't go watch the movie. And that might offend your unbelieving friend because you don't go watch a movie with him. But you sacrifice that for your immature believer friend. Make sense? Okay. Sacrifice your Christian liberty for the sake of others. Refrain over restrain. Now the basic rule here is to not offend your neighbor, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. But if you have to choose, offend yourself before you would a weaker brother or sister. And if you have to choose, offend an unbeliever before you would a weaker brother or sister. But if you can, offend no one. Now I know that that's a lot to unpack. But again, it's so very important. And it leads me to my final question of today, a question that I think that all of us should wrestle with in this room, whether you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus. But it's this. Why listen to these principles regarding your neighbors? Why listen to them? Why do them? And I believe that Paul answers that for us in verses 31 through 33. Again, the main thrust for this entire passage. Open your Bibles, read along with me. It's so, so good. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So why does Paul say that you should seek the good of your neighbor over yourself? He gives us answers here to give glory to God so that unbelievers would be saved by stepping into a life-saving relationship with Jesus, and so that believers would not stumble and grow more into the likeness of Christ. Let me say those three things again. 
because they preach, to give glory to God so that unbelievers would be saved by stepping into a relationship with Jesus Christ and so that believers would not stumble and grow more into the likeness of Christ. This is why we should do these things to our unbelieving neighbors and to our believing neighbors. This is why we should act this way. But let me ask you this question. Through what lens do you see your neighbors? Through what lens do you see your neighbors? Honest evaluation here. This is a tough one. Do you see your neighbors as people to avoid? Do you see your neighbors as people to just deal with? Do you see your neighbors as a nuisance? Or do you see them as God sees them? Because God sees them as someone created in his likeness. God sees them as someone that he has providentially placed in your life. Earlier I mentioned Donald Lubeck and Jeremy Wentworth. I want to jump back into their story for just a moment. So after hearing the smoke detector go off, Jeremy Wentworth, as a neighbor to Donald Lubeck, he jumped out of his bed. He grabbed a cordless phone and a flashlight, and he headed down to the noise that was that smoke detector. And as he got down the hill, he saw this rolling mountain of black smoke. He dialed 911 immediately, and then he began to yell outside of the home, is anyone there? Donald, are you there? You see, because he knew his neighbor and he knew his name. He approached the house. He knew that his neighbor was in trouble. Eventually, he heard him yell back, help me, I'm trapped, coming from the balcony of Lubick's bedroom. At this point, Jeremy Wentworth is still on the phone, and the, the dispatcher says to him, he said, they say, don't go into the house. Don't go in to the house. Jeremy Wentworth says back to the dispatcher, I'm sorry, this is my friend, this is my neighbor. I've got to go in and do everything that I can. Inside the house, windows begin to shatter all around. Jeremy was doing everything he could to find out where Donald was. And on his last attempt, he goes around to the back of the house and the wind parted just enough and the black smoke cleared just enough that he saw Donald up on the second floor balcony and he ran over with his flashlight to a shed and grabbed a ladder and dragged the ladder over to the balcony and helped pull Donald Lubeck down just as the second floor of this wooden home collapsed. To this day, Lubeck still chokes up when he tells this story. He says, I was alone. I thought no one would be there for me, but then I heard the most beautiful sound in my life. It was my neighbor, Jeremy. How do you see your neighbors? Do you treat your neighbors in such a way that brings glory to God? Do you lay down your preferences? Do you lay down your time, your talents, your energies for that of your neighbors? Would you get out of bed in the middle of the night and do everything you can to offer salvation for the life of your neighbor? I hope and pray that each of us would be like Jeremy Wentworth, that we would sacrifice the safety and the comfort of our lives to go to our neighbors. And while it's completely unlikely that any of us will have, ever have to go through this situation, let me tell you that all of us, if we know Jesus, we, all of us have the opportunity to save someone to be used to save someone from eternal destination apart from God. But we have to know our neighbors. We have to be able to go to our neighbors. We have to be able to take salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ to our neighbors. 
That requires us being selfless. That requires us immersing ourselves into the lives of our neighbors. That requires us refraining from our own preferences and our own safety to get outside of our comfort zone and to talk about Jesus and what he's done on the cross and how he was raised from the dead. Paul ends verse 33 by saying some beautiful words. He says, I do all of these things so that they may be saved. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we are grateful for your son Jesus. We know that you have sent him to this earth so that we might point people to him and to the gospel, to the good news of who he is. I pray, God, that in this room right now that you would convict, but you would also encourage hearts. Allow us to come outside of ourselves. Allow us to come outside of our bubbles and to see our neighbors as you see them, as people that you've created in your likeness, as people that need to know your son, Jesus. I pray, God, that you would move in our hearts and in our lives in such a way that would point people and draw people back to yourselves. Pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with us. If you've been a member at Grayson for a long time, then you know exactly what this moment is about. In fact, it may become so routine. You may be on autopilot right now. Like, yeah, we're going to sing a song. But I pray that you wouldn't treat this moment as just a routine. It's just an autopilot. Because this is an opportunity for you to respond to what God is doing in your life, to respond to what you have just heard. And if you have a neighbor that does not know Jesus, if you know their name, I would love for you at the end of this service just to come forward and to pray for them, lift up their name, and ask that God would soften their hearts, that God would give you an opportunity to build a more lasting relationship so that you can tell them about Jesus. If you don't know this Jesus, if you feel like Donald Lubeck and you're just kind of on that second story all alone and you're just waiting for someone to come and, and to save you, know that Jesus is running after you right now and that you have an opportunity to surrender to him and to be saved from an eternal separation from a holy God. If this is you, we would love for you to come forward. Maybe this morning you're just walking through some really difficult times and life is hard and you just don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do. We've got prayer counselors that would love to meet with you, that would love to pray with you together up here. We've also got communion available in the, the front and on the sides. If you're a believer in Jesus and if you've examined your heart before him, we would love for you to take communion now. But whatever the case may be, let's, let's, let's go to God. Let's ask that he would transform our hearts in such a way that we would see our neighbors as he sees them. People created in his image that he wants to draw to himself. So let's respond together.